0: Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Advisor podcast. Today I'm delighted to have Mark Moss with me. Welcome Mark, how are you? Yeah, Jake, I'm uh, doing great. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Thank you for joining. So I always start in the same way for this show. In today's current investment climate, why is Bitcoin a critical part of your portfolio?
1: I can answer that from a bunch of reasons. I mean, we will talk about just from a purely financial standpoint, I would say, I've been a full-time investor for decades at this point, and I've never seen anything that has as good of a risk-adjusted entry as we have with Bitcoin right now. I just have never seen anything like it. I don't think it's probable to go to zero, but let's just say hypothetically it goes to zero. It's a 1x on the downside. I think we got an easy 20 to 30x on the upside. And so to have that sort of a risk-return profile is just insane. I I can't really think of another asset that has that. Um, maybe some super, super speculative, like Explorer resource mining stocks, some things like that, but to have this in sort of almost an institutional grade asset right now, I've just never seen that. So I think it's the best opportunity for an investment that I've seen as of today, much better, even than the entry when I got in, in 2015 at at 300 bucks. And so that's why I'd say from a financial standpoint, from other standpoints, I would say you know, it's even bigger than that, obviously. So as someone who's been investing for a long time, I've always believed that money should go where it's treated best. And so, you know, when I didn't have a lot of dollars, I thought about putting every dollar very carefully to make sure it went in the exact best location for me, whatever best was at that time. As I've gotten older, and as I've gotten more money, things start to change with the way I I think about investing as well. And so then I start to think about, well, investing in things I want to support, right, building the world that I want. And so years ago, in my investor newsletter, we stopped investing into anything in China, no more China stocks. That's just a matter of ideology. I got millions of places to put my money. Why would I put my money in anything related to China? So that would be negative things I don't want to do. But then also I want to invest into things I do want to do. And so, you know, I believe that besides being the best return investment that we have, you know, with Bitcoin, I think it's the best tool that we have for freedom. And as a parent with two kids that was greatly affected during the whole pandemic in 2020 in California, that was very strict. I just said, hey, man, I got to spend the rest of my life trying to make the world a better place. Uh, One of the U.S. founding fathers, Thomas Paine, he said, if there must be trouble, let it be in my day so that my children may know peace. And so that's where we're at. And so I'm just doing everything I can to make that better world. And so. I want to invest into things that I think will do that. I want I want the best return, put my money where it's working best, but also at the same time, that's suiting and serving my needs. And so there's no other tool that's working for freedom like Bitcoin. So on one side of the equation, it's the single best investment return I've seen. And at the other end, it's the single best return for freedom that I've ever seen. And so why wouldn't I put my money there?
0: Amen to that. It's such a, a magical Combination. Once you start studying what this thing actually is, and a very direct question mark of your net worth, would you be willing to share what percent you have in Bitcoin today?
1: Uh, I, I'm, I'm, and that's that's not a problem. I think I'm probably close to fifty percent of my net worth in there. Part of the reason why is because I started buying so long ago. And so it's grown to that. If we look at cash in, it would be a much smaller uh, position, but that's not how I look at my portfolio not that I mark to market it on a daily basis, but I do rebalance it quarterly Uh, the thing with Bitcoin. And most assets that I own are just their assets that I don't ever want to sell. The way that I look at investing is a little bit different than most people. And again, my viewpoints have changed specifically as I've gotten older and, and I've gotten more money. I tend to think of things like I, I, I think about it in three different ways. So one creating wealth. And this is what most people have wrong. They think they can invest their way to wealth and that just doesn't, doesn't work. That's why Warren Buffett still goes to work at a company every single day called Berkshire Hathaway and Ray Dalio worked at a company every day called um, Bridgewater Capital. And so we always need to be working. We have to be creating wealth. Then once I've created that wealth, I've, I've made that wealth with my business, then what do I do with it? Well, then I want to save it. Now, most people consider investing, I think about it as saving, but where do I save it? Well, I save it in scarce assets. I save it in assets that will beat inflation. And so Bitcoin would definitely be one of those. I've I've always been, I still am a big real estate guy. I save it in assets like that, which most people would consider investing. The reason why I look at it as saving is because it gives me this long-term perspective. Specifically, well, let me keep going. I'll come back to it. And then I, I think of investing as like private equity, venture capital deals that I do, as well as some maybe very risky speculative, like I said, some resource mining stuff that I like to play around with on that, on that specter. So the investing stuff is more like the PEVC and some speculative plays on that side. The the big, more stable stuff, the scarce assets, I think of it as savings. And the reason why I think of a savings versus investing is the investing, the speculative plays, those are things I'll sell, right? I just buy them. I'm just trying to make more US dollars. But the scarce resources that I buy, for example, I'm building a house down in Mexico on what I think is the best place in Mexico, right on the beach, beachfront on one of the best surf breaks. And I think this area is going to be the best ever. And so when I have a scarce resource like beachfront on a surf break, I'm just never going to sell that. Like since I've owned it the last couple of years, we're building it right now and it's just blowing up. And and you know, neighbors around me are like, oh my gosh, look how much our property values went up. I said, I don't care because I don't ever want to sell that asset. And I put my Bitcoin in that same category. And so that's why I think about it as savings because the goal, you know, anytime somebody asks me, like, at what price are you going to sell your Bitcoin? It just kind of shows that they don't really understand the game of money. And 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 money is a game, and they just don't understand that. And so the goal is to earn money and turn it into wealth take my riches and turn them into wealth and wealth is assets and the goal is for me to always have more assets and for my assets to continue to grow and my assets to pass down to my kids and to grow for them and for their kids and grow for them and so if i owned five blocks of downtown manhattan real estate i would never sell that If I own beachfront real estate, which I do in California and Mexico, I don't ever want to sell that. And the same would be with my Bitcoin. And so while most people approach it as
0: investing, that's why I said I think about it as more savings. Awesome. What amazing insights. Thank you for sharing, Mark. I always find it so interesting that discussion about saving versus investing. And, you know, in my case, I received money as an inheritance when my father died. And you have this problem. It's like, well, what do I do with it? And You've figured out a system that works for you and you're happy with that. And everyone is unique in that sense. Um, but saving and investing are two different things. Uh, and it's wonderful to hear you talk through that. Can you highlight some of the, the, the times perhaps where you had a challenge or you, you, you faced a specific problem and your investing slash, let's call it wealth management strategy has evolved over time. It's fascinating to hear that today, even with all your experience, you're about 50% Bitcoin. That's a huge signal out of all the things we might talk about today, but that wasn't always the case. And so I'd like to just dig around a little bit in the history there of what brought you to today in that sense. Yeah.
1: So first of all, when I talk about what size of my portfolio, I think about it in terms of what I call investable assets. So like my personal residence, I don't consider part of my investable net worth. My businesses, I don't really consider them part of my investable net worth because they're not for sale. Just to kind of clarify that a little bit, I think about my investable net worth as stuff that I might move around. But in, anyway, in regards to that, you know, I got my my investing career started right out of the gate. I mean, literally right out of high school, I started buying uh, real estate from the bank. At the time, California real estate had just gone through a a massive crash. The banks had all these properties on their books. They had to get rid of them and they were literally selling them for zero down. And so I started buying properties, started fixing them up, selling them. And so just jumped right into this, you know, whatever investor world that I didn't even know what I was doing at that point. And so it's just always been that way. That was when I was like 19. And then I started buying these like crazy things. Nobody knew what they were. My roommate quit his job. We're day trading these things called internet stocks. We're using these weird words. Nobody knew we were talking about these internet stocks. Started doing that. Um, so I've been doing this a long time. As far as some of the mistakes that I've made, I've made plenty and I'm more than happy to talk about them. The biggest mistake that I made though was, um, you know, so I started buying real estate, I started buying tons of uh, rental properties. I had over 200 doors at one point. I built up two different businesses that I sold an e-commerce business, a medical device uh, business, built both of those up, sold them fortune 500 exit, like big exits. And my goal was to be retired by the time I was 30 and I got married and I had my first kid and I built this big house, elevator, six car garage, whitewater ocean views. My daughter's like one or two years old. Everything is perfect. I'm living high on life. I'm the smartest guy in the room or whatever. And then boom, the 2008 financial crash came and just just leveled me out. That was certainly the biggest mistake that I've ever made. And when I say the mistake, I mean, a couple of things. One, Real estate in California had only ever dropped one time in history. I'm a student of history. Anybody who follows me knows that. But we only really tracked real estate since the 60s. But it only ever dropped one time. And the worst 12-month drop in history was 6%. So, you know, trying to do brisk management, I'm still pretty young at this point. And I'm thinking, okay, well, the worst drop in history was 6%. If it doubled that, what would it be? 12%? Yeah, I'm cool. Cool. What about if it tripled that 18%? Yeah, I got that. What about if it quadrupled that 24%? Yeah, no problem. I'm ready for four times worse storm than we've ever seen in all of history at 24% it would be four times worse. And it dropped 60%, 60%. So I thought I was smart. I thought I had studied history. I thought I was quadruple prepared and I wasn't. And a couple of reasons why I wasn't prepared. First of all, I didn't really understand as much as I did. I wasn't, I guess, practicing really good asset allocation. So I didn't have different assets. I had sold two businesses. I had sold my rental properties around the country. And I was all in on developing Southern California real estate. We bought products you know, from the dirt and we we're building from the ground up. And so I was all in I, I, and I sold all my other assets so I could get a big amount of chips and push them in and do these really big projects. And so I was allocated only into... Developing in Southern California, that was a big problem, and I had sold my businesses, two different businesses that provided me income. So remember, I said in the beginning part, and this is part of my lesson. I said that we have to think about three way wealth in three ways: one, creating wealth, why Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio go to business, right? Two, multiplying, so you're multiplying the wealth you've created, and three, preserving it. I didn't understand those two, so I had sold my business, so I had no income. So when the market crashed sixty percent, I had this massive real estate portfolio that all of a sudden I couldn't carry. So I was over leveraged, right? I used debt, I had leverage, and I couldn't carry it. And then part of the reason why I couldn't carry it, well, I'm not gonna get into that right now. But that was the big lesson. So the lesson, the takeaway from that is one, <laughs> practice risk, proper risk management, which is a couple of things, one, making sure you have proper allocations, diversification through allocations and, and positions. But then ultimately, always making sure you can carry the debt. So because we're in a debt-based monetary system, the best way to build wealth is with debt. But I think about debt leverage as like a fire, right? Like fire can warm my house and cook my food, or it can burn my whole house down. If you don't know how to use it properly. Dave Ramsey, he's famous all over America. I don't know if, if you know who Dave Ramsey is down in Australia. Uh, millions and millions and millions of followers. And his big thing is like, don't take on debt, stay out of debt, you know, pay off all your debt. And he's right. For the majority of people, the majority of people should not use debt because they're just not smart enough to deal with it. But if you want to play with fire, you got to know how to deal with it. And so that's what I've learned is always making sure you can cover that debt. So there's a couple of big takeaways. I I can, I can sit here and go for, for hours on all the other problems I've had, (laughs) but I'll stop there for a minute.
0: No, thanks, Mark. What I love about that is, you know, we all just learn so much through life. And without taking risk, there is no reward. So really amazing entrepreneurial story. And obviously, the blow up of that must have been extraordinarily emotional and and difficult to get through yet, you know, you live to fight another day. And here you are 10 or so years later, and things obviously going really well. What I'd like to understand more about is the The nuts and bolts of using debt and building businesses and having asset values that aren't actually real when the macro environment changes and the difference that is as a store of wealth versus Bitcoin and why you're so excited about Bitcoin as a different mechanism for saving your wealth over time.
1: Well, I think after the 2008 financial crash, I was like, whoa, like what just happened? I got knocked out. I'm like coming to, I'm like, what, what, like what just happened? I I don't understand, you know? And uh, I realized I was really good at making money. I I had done really good at making money. So um, the, the, the business side of things I had become pretty good at. What I didn't have any understanding of was this financial casino that was going on. I didn't understand what the Fed was doing, interest rates and monetary policy. So I was like, whoa, like, whoa, what, what just happened there? Now I grew up racing dirt bikes. I still do. I've had now at this point, eight major surgeries. I've had all my limbs screwed back together with metal. And so I'm sort of just like, okay, let me just try that again. So let me shake that off and let's try it again. And, but I was like, look, I started studying this. I started researching this, like what the heck is going on? I became a gold bug. I started to realize it's fiat money, and it's the Fed that causes all these problems. You can't just print money. And so I was listening to Mike Maloney and and Peter Schiff and these guys, and I became a gold bug. I'm like, the the fiat money is the problem. We need a sound money system. We need to go back to gold. And at that point, the saying is, the generals always fight the last war. And it was like, look, none of the problems that we had in 2008 were resolved. All they've done is allowed things to get worse and worse and worse, even to today. And so I just kept thinking, man, there's another crash coming. There's another crash. The banks are going to be insolvent. The banks are going to collapse. This is going to be bad. And again, listening to those gold bugs who have been screaming that now for whatever, 12, 14 years, they'll be right eventually, but um, not for a while probably. But anyway, I kept thinking that was the problem. That was the problem. That was the problem. And so I was trying to figure out how I could protect myself from that. Specifically, how could I get money out of the banking system? And so that, that was the mission I was on. I was uh, subscribing to a newsletter called Sovereign Man. Simon Black writes it. And it's about like, you wouldn't put all your money into one stock. So why do you have your whole life in one country? So I was in the process of trying to open up a bank account in Panama. I was trying to get a trust and a bank account. I was going to work on a citizenship there because I was trying to get money out of the banking system. And that's when I took another look at Bitcoin. It had kind of crossed my desk around 2013. I saw it going up. It caught my attention. It crashed. I kind of disregarded it. In 2015, I was like, wait a minute, get my money out of the banking system. And that was the reason why I bought Bitcoin. So anyway, how does it change? Well, today, we still have a monetary system that's being manipulated by the Fed. They're still changing it at, at their whim. And they're able to drive financial markets based off of that. But if I don't want to play that game, then I don't have to play that game. And so I can just sidestep all of that and go into Bitcoin. You know, if you look at 1933, gold had been money for 5,000 years. 1933 in the United States, the banks went on a bank holiday. They shut down when they opened back up. Americans were no longer able to get their gold out of the bank anymore. Then on top of it, they cast you out for the gold, but then they devalued it right away. So now all of a sudden, not only did you lose your lose your real money, now you got devalued on top of it. So how would you have protected yourself from that? If you had a time machine, what would you do? Well, if you had a ranch with a bunch of cattle instead of gold in the bank, you weren't affected by that. And so the key is thinking of this adversarial is how can I store my wealth in a way that can't be affected. It can't be inflated away. can't be um, stolen, seized, et cetera. And so that's kind of where Bitcoin really fits into this. I feel it's a way to just sidestep all the madness of what's going on in Wall Street with the Fed, et cetera, Fed
0: policy. Awesome. And it's so important anyone out there that's listening that, you know, you'll have a financial advisor, you'll have a, a probably very traditional 60-40 bond equity split portfolio, Note that Mark talks about those as investments, right? Not necessarily as as a savings vehicle because they're companies that you're buying or government debt that you're buying. And so understanding that there is another place that you could potentially store your wealth is a critical part to this. And, And what Mark's explained just shows so nicely the difference between the two areas. And Mark, what I'd love to understand a bit more about now is, I know you're part of the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund, and I had James Lavish on last week. You're involved in, as you described earlier, some private equity stuff, some venture capital stuff. Teach us a bit about what you're seeing happening there. And I particularly like this whole concept of looking under the hood of Bitcoin and say, okay, there are companies being built, there's more technology being built. And it's not just buy this coin, sit on it forever. There's a whole ecosystem of things happening. So what gets you most excited about that? And can you share some of the insights you're getting?
1: Yes, certainly. Going back to kind of what you just said a minute ago about the, the stocks and bonds. I don't really participate in that too much because again, I don't want to be in their system. I like to participate out of that. So I've always been more of a fan of like alternative investments and alternative investments might be precious metals, commodities, energies, things like that. But not really so much in public equities. I did mention private equity and I did mention venture capital, but not so much in private equity and the reason why is because in order to be very competitive, in order to be good at something, whether that's sports or business or investing, you have to find out what your edge is. So if I'm going to play, I'm not that big. I'm eleven. If I was going to play someone six, four basketball, I can't shoot over their head, for example, so I have to find my edge. Well, hopefully maybe I'm quicker and I can go underneath or something like that. And so in business. Or in sports or in investing, you have to find that edge. But the problem is in public equities, there's no edge. All that information is readily available. Now, the Wall Street high-frequency traders that spend a billion dollars on their fiber optic lines, they have an edge. I don't have an edge there. So I tend to try to stay away from those markets pretty much altogether. But private equity, venture capital, I can have an edge there, right? Because I understand business, I understand tech, I understand history, cycles, etc. I've studied this for a long time. And so I've loved to play in that arena and I do. And so that's where I think about the investing side. So I've been I don't know 12 years, at least now that I've been involved sort of in the the private equity, pre IPO and some venture cap stages. And and a lot of it is because of of my business. And like I said, I've been around the kind of the internet and the tech side for a long time. I feel that one of my edges is that I'm very good at spotting trends and patterns a lot of the work that I've done, you've probably seen talking about like these cycles that we have and different cycles and they converge at different times. And so just the ability to see like patterns and things like that. And so that helps when I'm looking for private equity or venture cap deals to get into. And when you study technology cycles or specifically even more uh there's technology cycles, but there's also technological revolution cycles that happen about every 50 years. And so they're different than a new technology, whereas a new technology is sort of like a continuation of another technology where like an iPhone, for example, is a computer and a phone and we put them together. So we took two things, we put them together, and it's the iPhone. Like, that's cool we all love the iPhone. That's great. But it's not a technological revolution, which is different because one, it changes the course of humanity and two, it drives financial markets. And so if you look at the last five, we had the industrial revolution. We had uh, steam engines and railways, electricity and steel. We had uh, automobiles and oil. 1971, we had the uh, microprocessor, which brought telecommunications, internet. And now I believe we're witnessing another one. And so they drive financial markets. So what does that mean? Well, the last 50 years have been driven. All markets have been telecom, Internet and computer. Before that, it was the industrials, Ford, GM, GE. Before that, it was steel, it was oil, right? Those dry financial markets. I believe we're going to the next one and it's, it's around a clustering of technologies. And so while Bitcoin, the asset, is great and I love it and I have a lot of it as a percentage of my portfolio, I believe that it's going to kickstart the next 50 years of financial markets based off the clustering of other technologies. So with oil, for example, you can certainly buy a barrel of oil, no doubt. But I could also buy into the company that developed the software to go do sonogram on the ground to find where the oil pockets are. Or I can invest in the company that invented the new drill head that allows the drill to get down faster. Or I can invest in the pipelines that move the ice. I can invest in the tankers that move, right? So there's all this in the oil industry to invest into. I don't just have to buy a barrel of oil. And the same is true for any other industry. And so I think that I believe that the Bitcoin industry will be the exact same way. I believe Bitcoin is, is the greatest investment op-, op that we've seen from a risk reward standpoint. And so you should certainly buy that. But there's all these other, there's a whole revolution of technologies that are being spun up around that. They're that going to be amazing opportunities as well. And so uh, we're already starting to see this in many areas. For example, in the mining space specifically, um, we're starting to see now where energy companies are starting to use Bitcoin mining, not even so much really from a Bitcoin mining standpoint, but really to effectively balance their loads. And so now just in that space alone, some of these vertically integrated companies are now building their own software, their own switches, their own racks, they're controlling their own power sources. And so that's a whole industry that's been spawned out of Bitcoin right? Now we're starting to see Bitcoin ETFs, things like that. We're starting to see some of the, the traditional people getting involved, PayPal's, et cetera. But we're starting to also see like point of sale terminals in merchants starting to adopt it. And so this is going to start to spin up all new types of technologies. And specifically, like I said, uh, lots of opportunities. So that's the way that I look at it. Certainly you should buy Bitcoin. I'm an advisor with Trammell Venture Partners, which is a venture capital VC fund. And so I'm an advisor for them. I work with some of the companies that we invest in. And I'm also an investor there and that's all venture capital. So this is specifically going in to the companies themselves at the very, very early stage. And we're betting long that these companies will win big. Now, the way venture cap works is you sort of play the field. Most of them don't ever make it big, but the the few that do, you know, hopefully have big offset gains. Uh, What the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund is doing is a little bit differently. And I'm sure James broke it down for you pretty well. So I won't really go back deep into that unless you want me to. But um, we're doing something different than all the venture cap funds that are out there where we're doing like a public-private hybrid, which allows us to, take advantage of more opportunities throughout the ecosystem and specifically what we're trying to do is provide a better risk adjusted return so venture cap is all long and it's super risky Uh, bitcoin is less risky than venture cap and what we're doing is even less risk so we're not trying to necessarily outperform bitcoin we're trying to provide a better risk adjusted return on bitcoin
0: the world of investing. There's all these different areas that you can focus on. And that idea of edge is so great. As a Bitcoin podcaster, over the last couple of years, I've been creating content. So it would be crazy of me not to ask you about your experience more as a media guy and how that process is going. I know over the weekend, or as we started the call, you mentioned your Twitter account was hacked. So perhaps we start there. But I'd love to understand how you got into the media business and, and how that's going for you at the moment as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, my Twitter account is hacked at this point. They put a pinned tweet on my thing saying uh, come get this Web3 <laughs> crypto thing. They took my whole website made a duplicate website and then they just changed the one thing which someone told me is going to like some like a uh, web scraper wallet where they're trying to like steal your private keys or something I don't know. So that's some of the joys of being a public figure I suppose. But yeah, you know, how I got into it was sort of interesting because I had, as I told you, been on the internet since the early, early days and I spent about a decade doing just lead generation. So driving traffic, you know, to different campaigns across the internet, but I never had built up like a list. I was never like a public figure, like an influencer. I mean, that wasn't even a thing at the the time, but um when I first found out about Bitcoin, as I told you back in 2015, and and being the disillusioned guy that I was after getting burned in the great financial crash and understanding it was the financial system that was the big problem and and, and still thinking that we were gonna have another big crash coming and trying to protect myself. But really, like I said, really being disillusioned on the whole system, including the political system and all of that, it was when I took another look at Bitcoin in 2015, I was like, Oh, I can get my money out of the bank, which I did. And but as you know, as we say, get a little skin in the game, and then you start to really pay attention. Like, what is this thing? What are we really doing here? And as I started to look at that, I was like, dang, we, like, this is it. This is the tool that we can finally win with. Like, we actually have a chance. We're no longer like these angry gold people or these libertarians that want change but have no real way to affect it. Like, we actually have a tool now. And so at that point I was like, I got to tell everybody I know, and I got to start talking about it all the time. And, And so I did. And as I started just talking to my friends and family, mainly just friends and family that I thought would be interested at the time. But back then it was very early. So word started spreading very, very fast. Before long, my phone's blowing up. My email's blowing up. Friends of friends of friends of friends are all reaching out. Now, full disclaimer, um, I went down the crypto rabbit hole. So then 2016 came and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, what are all these other tokens? Oh, these are moving up really big too. And so then I kind of went down the whole crypto rabbit hole and started talking about, you know, whatever all the other cryptocurrencies that were out there. I started writing a research newsletter every month. I'd write 20, 25 pages on this crypto project and this crypto project and that crypto project. So I was that guy by about 2019 after publishing probably over a thousand pages of research on whoever knows, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 different projects. I just kind of came to the realization after doing all that much work and that much research that it's like, no, all this is basically just, it's all just a scam. And so I'm just going to focus on Bitcoin. So I've just been focused on Bitcoin ever since. So that was sort of the path to becoming a whatever content creator around it. It wasn't super intentional. I didn't really set out to do it sort of like what you did. It was more just like I started talking about to friends and family and the demand just kind of built up around that. So it's been interesting and having been doing that for so long it also has been interesting to go through like multiple bear markets when the price is surging and it's all over the news and everybody's talking about it there's plenty of stuff to talk about all the time but you know we we saw bitcoin go from a thousand in 2017 to twenty thousand dollars and then 2018 2019 was just dead like by 2019 i mean there was just nothing to talk about like there was nothing going on right so It's been interesting from that standpoint, trying to find different things to talk about it, but the way that I see it, and maybe the way I would think about it, if, if I was talking to other content creators or want to be content creators about it, if you think about it just as money, then money touches every single aspect of our lives. And so then you really start to think about like, where's the intersection with my life personally? right um, now as i kind of started out talking about before the bitcoin opportunity fund talking about how there's these technological revolutions and i believe that bitcoin is a lot bigger than just money It's going to affect all these different things and so like at what point does it intersect my life for the things I'm interested in. So for example, there's certainly people that are just super interested in the code side of things and they're talking about you know, the Bitcoin core and the codes and all the updates and things like that. There's certainly guys that are really interested in the way Bitcoin is affecting energy and they're talking about how Bitcoin and energy intersect. For me personally, because of my PTSD from the, the great financial crash and then my all of a sudden very renewed interest in this financial system, I talk about it in the bigger macro lens and how the problems with the macro lens, and now, now you probably understand why I talk about macro so much talking about Fed policy, inflation, and things like that. I talk about those because those are things that affected me. And so I like to focus on how those are driving the need for Bitcoin, as well as the freedom topics. And so I talk about, you know, problems with censorship and things like that, because I think Bitcoin also fixes that. And those are ideas or things that I see as a problem. So for me, that's where Bitcoin sort of intersects what I'm interested in, greater finance, freedom, censorship. But for other people, it may be somewhere different. But I think you find out what what interests you
0: um, and then, yeah, just dig in, and just go for it. And that's a nice segue. You mentioned censorship. So always try and squeeze in a, an audience question. So Seth Michael Steele is asking about YouTube and their permanent banning of content about Bitcoin. And is Noster actually something feasible that you could move to? So what are the mechanics of the platform you choose? And, and how do you think through that?
1: I remember the first time I found myself like self censoring myself for a YouTube video, and I can still remember the feeling and just like just sad and almost just like disbelief and maybe even like disgust and a little bit older and having grown up under the cold War, you know we we grew up learning how bad communism was, and how these people in Cuba and Russia couldn't do what they wanted and say what they wanted and All of a sudden, here I was in America finding myself doing the exact same thing. It was a pretty sad day. I found a way to just sort of do what I do and play inside the line, so to speak. You know, while, like I said, on one hand, it makes me sad. It makes me angry. On the other side, I just look at it like, hey, I'm in someone else's sandbox. I got to play by their rules. You know, I'm not going to go to your house, Jake, and do whatever I want. I'm going to abide by your rules as well, or I can just leave your house, right? So I don't like it, but it is what it is. And so if I want to be on YouTube, I got to abide by their rules. Really, the two things I couldn't talk about were I couldn't talk about the election and I couldn't talk about the medicine, if you know what I mean. Uh, Well, I don't know if we still can. YouTube came out and made a formal statement that you could now talk about the election. So now they open that up. But So I just just don't talk about those two things. And I get around it. And most people ask me all the time, like, how the heck do you avoid not getting uh, shut down? But I think I stay away from it. I have not seen them say anything about not talking about Bitcoin specifically. And I don't think that's... That's the first I've ever heard of that. I have a really hard time believing if that was true at all. I I don't think that's true, I, I, but I haven't heard it.
0: No, I, I must say I haven't seen that specifically stated myself, although what was a revelation to me recently is I was looking into some paid advertising options for the Bitcoin advisor and you cannot advertise the word Bitcoin using Google or Facebook. So the actual word in their keywords is banned. Uh, which to me is fascinating. You think about your online experience on a day-to-day basis and you have this perception of freedom. But then if the biggest search engine is not able to advertise, you know, and it is their, it's their property, right? They can do what they want. But you just think, what is my perception of reality as a result of all of these different kind of choices that other people are making in some ways? It's crazy, isn't it? Well, that's actually how I got onto YouTube. So I told you I was writing this, this cryptocurrency
1: research newsletter. I spent about a 10 years driving paid traffic for different um, campaigns. So at first it was just friends and family, but then I was like, well, shoot, I might as well just see if people want to buy this. So I started running ads on Facebook and Google and that's how I sold the newsletter. And then, you know, very simply markets stop going up when there's no more buyers. And they also stop going down when there's no more sellers. So in 2017, as Bitcoin and crypto start going up, 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 start sucking in more buyers, more buyers, more buyers, more buyers. And then it starts going parabolic. That's a blow off top. And right at the peak in December of 2017 and January of 2018, Facebook and Google banned all advertising on cryptocurrency. So all of a sudden, here I am selling a newsletter <laughs> and I'm running ads and now I can't do that. So I'm like, well, how the heck am I going to sell this thing now? So my business partner at the time, we're no longer partners, but at the time he's like, well, here's what I'll do. I'll start a YouTube channel and I'll just do technical analysis all day, live streaming and we'll just sell the product that way. And so that's how we got onto YouTube. um, And it was all just from organic. I thought that they had now allowed you to do advertising. I remember that they did. And I think you had to be approved. It's a long time since I've tried to run ads on that. But anyway, funny story. That's how I got onto YouTube in the first place.
0: And like all entrepreneurs in some ways, you know, you have to play the games within the the rules that are set. And if you are going to be on someone's rented property, whether that be Twitter or YouTube, then, you know, you need to abide by what they set in some senses. Um, and that's just the rules of doing business. Otherwise, you can't do anything in some ways. And if that requires you to self-censor, then go somewhere else if you've got a problem with it. It is something that, yeah. that does irk me. I yeah, unfor- unfortunately, in the digital age.
1: I was going to say, unfortunately in the digital age though, I mean, if you want to sell a product and you can't advertise on uh, Facebook and Google, I mean, you're going to have a really, really, really tough time with it. So that's unfortunate. I know you'd asked me about Nostra as well. I have an account on there. To me, it's not super user-friendly. And so, you know, I'm waiting for the UI kind of UX to kind of come around, which I'm sure it will. You know, from a more technical standpoint, I'm probably not the best person to really ask about that. I've had some pretty in-depth conversations with several of the developers that work on it. I understand there's some Pretty big constraints that need to be get, got around at some point, more le- more relays, bigger relays, things like that. But, you know, again, being on the internet from the early stages, seeing Bitcoin as well, all we ever heard is it can't scale, it can't scale, it can't scale, but it does. And so <laughs> I understand there's some serious we'll constraints with Noster today, but I'm sure, you know, like anything else, they'll probably find a way. There's, there's two problems. Like, first of all, the internet itself is pretty decentralized. Right. Take Alex Jones from Infowars. Like he got wiped off the face of the earth, but yet he's bigger than ever still on just his own personal website. So the internet's already pretty decentralized. The problem is that we use centralized platforms like YouTube or like Twitter. Right. And so it's YouTube that wants to censor you. Now you can go to Rumble, and Rumble lets it fly. Now, the problem with rumble is that they let it fly today. Would they change their mind later? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Probably somebody will at some point. At least that's what I think. I like what Noster's doing in a sense, because it's sort of like email, right? So I have my email list and I use a company called Active Campaign. But if Active Campaign, I don't like them anymore. They charge me too much money. They say, I can't talk about Bitcoin in my email, whatever. I can take my email list and I can just go to Gmail. And now I still have my email list and now I'm using Gmail. And then I don't like Gmail. So I go to Hotmail and then I want more security. So I go to Protonmail, but I can use any of the email clients, but I keep my email list. And that's sort of the way it looks like Noster starting to shape up where you sort of have like these Twitter clients, if you will. And if I don't like Twitter client A, I can just take my whole list, all my data and go to Twitter client B and Twitter client C and potentially even have interoperability where like Twitter could communicate with like a Facebook type client. So. So it sounds super promising. I'm excited for something like that. I'm actually going to go speak at Bitblock Boom next week, and it's something I'm working on. But I think we'll start to see more of this where really we're seeing... What I'm going to make the case of is that like Bitcoin being a decentralized technology is starting to incentivize lots of other types of decentralized technologies, because a lot of them were really held back because we didn't have the payment piece. But now that we have the payment piece, now we have to play around, experiment with these other types of decentralized technology. So I'm pretty bullish on it. I think it's going to happen.
0: I agree. I'm just slowly taking my time watching it develop. And it it has the potential to solve some very real risks as content creators, like platform risk is very real. Mark, what you've done there is nicely teaming up for something I wanted to bring us back to as a subject, which is the word freedom. So Bitcoin has solved the problem of decentralized value transfer, and therefore you're seeing other opportunities or technologies come out of that. So why is Bitcoin so important for freedom?
1: It's important for freedom for a bunch of reasons, but let me just talk about two. I think right off the bat, I'll I'll start with the first one, which is really if you look at the monetary system, you can easily see today how weaponized this monetary system has become. I think it's only getting worse and worse and worse. And it really came front and center with the trucker protests that we saw in Canada. When people who were doing something constitutionally protected just were turned criminals overnight and lost their bank accounts. People even that were donating money to them potentially were losing their bank accounts. So I think it became front and center to the rest of the world where like, hey, this doesn't just happen in North Korea. Like, sure, 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 it happens in North Korea, sure, oh yeah, it happens in Iran and Lebanon, okay, oh yeah, Argentina, okay, Venezuela, And oh yeah, Turkey, oh, okay, all those, but it doesn't happen in like the US or Canada or Europe, right? And then it did. And so I think really what's happening is as the governments of the world continue to get more and more corrupt... They're getting more pushback. And as they get more pushback, they have to continue to squeeze harder. And so this is one of the final pieces. So I think that's number one, it's the weaponization of the money, the censorship of the money. Um, Of course, then when Russia had their bank account seized, it really became front and center to the world, where if it can happen to Russia, then it can certainly happen to anybody. Most people don't realize, at least most people like us from like developed first world countries, but almost 2 billion adults in the world today don't even have access to the financial system. You're a 13 year old kid that was born in Iran. Sorry, no financial system for you. Most of them don't have permission to join the financial system. I like to think about, I I, I took my family to Europe for like almost a month this summer. I I love getting out and seeing things. And it was pretty interesting just to see how people live. And there's a lot of wealth over there, obviously, but there's also a lot of poverty. And the one thing that I just keep thinking about is this right here is like the great equalizer. You can literally learn anything. You can meet anyone. You can do anything with this. I mean, there's 13-year-old kids making a 100 grand off Instagram with just this. But if you don't have access to the financial system, you can't. 2 billion adults don't have that. So I think that's a big deal. So Bitcoin fixes that Bitcoin is what we call permissionless. It's borderless, you don't have the permission to join it's borderless. And it's censorship resistant, so it can't be taken away. And it's important to understand that because The way it works in the United States is that we are given freedoms that our founders believe we were born with unalienable freedoms. The constitution doesn't give us rights. The constitution is supposed to limit the power of the government on infringing in our rights. And so the government is prohibited from infringing on our rights, such as freedom of speech or freedom of assembly, for example. But really all freedoms hinge on the freedom to transact. Because without the freedom to transact, I don't have any of those other freedoms. So for example, while I am guaranteed, not given, I'm guaranteed the government won't infringe on my freedom to assemble, just like the truckers, if I can't put gas in my tank, if I can't pay to put gas in my tank, how do I drive to the assembly? If I can't pay for a hotel room when I get there, how do I go assemble? If I can't pay to get food when I'm there, right? I'm guaranteed freedom of speech, but if I don't have a phone to go on social media, if I can't print a flyer, if I can't build a website, and so really it all sits with that base freedom. The freedom to transact is what opens up and allows all those other freedoms, that's one. The other one that I'll talk about uh, quickly, and this is a bigger one is that, um, I mean, as if that one's not big enough, but if you look <laughs> yeah. at the, we it. <laughs> it, it's bigger because if you look at the trajectory that the world is on and kind of going back to these, these cycles thesis, the pendulum of the world swings on a 250 year arc from centralization to decentralization. And you can see that the governments of the world just get bigger, 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 bigger. And as they get bigger, 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 they want more control. They want to print more money. And so really, as these governments grow, they just print themselves the money. They can't extract it from us. So they they print themselves the money, and then they use that money to extract more wealth from us, as well as take away more freedoms at the same time. Endless wars, endless programs, uh, building surveillance states, you know, your own government has spent a lot of money to try to surveil and control you guys. And so they're using that money that they're printing out of thin air to do that. And really, when you look at it, like the source of all their power comes from their ability to print money. So if you think about that, and this is why I said back in 2015 that we finally have a tool we can win, what do I mean by that? Well, we can take away their main source of power. In the original Star Wars movie, you had uh, the rebels fighting the empire and the empire had the Death Star. And at the end of the original Star Wars, Luke Skywalker flies in on his X-wing plane, and he has to go to the Death Star, and he's flying in the trench, and there's like a little red spot at the end. He had to drop the bombs right on the thing, and then he flew away, and he hit the target, and he blew up the Death Star, and the whole empire crumbled, and hooray, everybody won at the moment. And that is what we're up against, and that red spot, that's the money printer. And so that's the piece that we have to attack is the money printer. That's the source of all their power. There's only one tool that we have to beat the money printer, and that's Bitcoin.
0: Mark, I heard you once say that if you look outside the window and see a tree and you see all the leaves on the tree, those are all the problems that you see in the world. But you go to the very root of that tree and what you will find is the money printer. And I thought that was such an interesting way of looking at it. because it's seemingly unconnected you know why are there more divorced families than ever before or why has the inequality gap grown or why have you know developing nations actually just become commodity hubs and not grown and start digging and digging and digging and actually you find that this whole debt-based system and money printer is at the bottom of what is becoming just this extraordinarily big power grab. Um, And Bitcoin, obviously, it fixes that in so many ways. And it's quite extraordinary to think that today the market cap of Bitcoin is not even a trillion bucks, and there's $900 trillion of wealth out there. So that brings me nicely to my, probably one of my last questions, Mark. What makes you so excited over the next five years because of Bitcoin? Because
1: of Bitcoin? Well, I would say uh, Bitcoin is a big piece of this, right? So, when you look back again, as I'm a student of history and I love to look at cycles, when you study thousands of years of history, what you realize is that the thing that really changes the world more than anything is always technology, because it changes the way that we work, we organize, we communicate, and all of those things. And really, it changes this balance of power from this centralization to decentralization, this pendulum swing. And so, they work in sort of concert. So, for example, for whatever thousands of years, we had horses. The Egyptians in the Bible, they had, you know, horse and chariots the romans would ride horses they'd get off their horses they'd fight their battles but it wasn't until we had a new invention new piece of technology called the stirrup about a thousand a.d that allowed a knight to get on a horse and fight from the horse and that piece of technology created massive centralization where then we got the whole feudal system where we had the kings and we had the knights because that knight could now control a hundred or so peasants or serfs from that horse. About 500 years later, we had a new piece of technology. And that new piece of technology was the gunpowder revolution. And now a serf could take out 100 knights. And that led to decentralization It decentralized the power base. We have the industrial revolution, which has moved everybody from farms into the cities and factories. And we got this massive accumulation of power again. And now we have the internet and, and, and Bitcoin, we are witnessing the pendulum swinging back And so for me, I'm not a fan of central planning. I believe central planning always fails. I believe we have way too much central planning with the UN, the IMF, the BIS, the Fed, the ECB, et cetera. And so... What I'm most excited about, I guess, in regards to Bitcoin is seeing it continue to develop, continue to see it really building all these new technologies, all these new types of industries, um, but ultimately really breaking down the power center of these central players, because I believe they're a big, big source of tyranny, right? And so I think over the next five years, we're really going to start to see things breaking down a lot. We'll continue to see the governments probably become more authoritarian, and we'll continue to see more and more why we need Bitcoin, People in some of the Western world still don't understand why we need something like Bitcoin. They'll all find out. So I think it's exciting. We'll see Bitcoin sort of continue to rise, continue to be used. Unfortunately, not for good reasons. Like I said, that's going to be used out of necessity, which isn't necessarily a good thing. As far as where I think the price will be of Bitcoin, I think will be probably well over a million dollars by that time. But as I already kind of said from the beginning, I don't really plan to sell it. So from that perspective, whether it goes to a million or 500,000 or 200,000 doesn't really matter to me as much, but it's really more of the way that I see it changing sort of our society, our communication styles, and really affecting our freedom is what I'm excited for.
0: And it's an awesome place to wrap things up, Mark, but it's such an intellectually engaging subject that you end up talking about a stirrup, you know, what is that? Well, it's like a a small round metal thing that you could attach to a horse, like, you know, X many thousand years ago that changed the game. And I've never come across a subject that tests me in so many ways and and ends up in areas that you just never expected to get to. So thank you very much for sharing your insights and your time today, Mark. Final point is where can people reach out and get in touch with if they so wish? Yeah. Well, not Twitter for right now, because <laughs> that's uh,
1: hopefully, hopefully that'll be fixed by the time this airs. Uh, but I do a couple of videos a week on my main YouTube channel. I talk for a couple hours a week on the radio, all Bitcoin content and a podcast, uh, as well as all the social media channels. So if you want to just find all of those, just go to my website. It's the number one Mark Moss, just one Mark Moss. And you can find them all linked there or just go to YouTube and search Mark Moss. Easy to find me there. And I'll be, depending on when this airs, I'll be speaking at BitBlockBoom in Austin, and I'll be speaking at the Bitcoin conference in Amsterdam. So check me out one of those places.
0: This goes live on Thursday. So in about 48 hours time, it'll be out. Awesome. Well, enjoy your oh, trip perfect. to Block Boom and to, to Bitcoin Amsterdam. That'll be great. Well, thanks for your time, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Jake. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of this episode. Firstly, If you want to learn more about our services, then please head to our website, www.thebitcoinadvisor.com. Secondly, if you have any friends or family members that might be interested in what we do, then please use our referral program. And lastly, please support the show by subscribing, rating and sharing our content. Until next time, take care, friends.